You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Jennifer and Maksat and Larissa and the whole team here at Krika for what is an exceptionally hospitable, um, delightful visit to Madison to see old friends and new friends. Um, it's, as I grow older and more sentimental, it feels lovely to be back and to see all of you again. Um, I just want to note, too, at the outset um, that this is really a co-authored project. Um, Lars, my co-author, Lars Lundgren, in Sodertorn University in Stockholm, um, of course, has other obligations there in Stockholm. Um, but this is a project that we've worked on together, which has been a very interesting kind of interdisciplinary experience. He's a media studies scholar, um, and we're both trying to master a kind of new uh, science, science and technology history topic. Um, so this is a very new project, and it's the first kind of major talk out of it where I've tried to combine con content from different chapters. Um, so I'm very eager for all of your feedback, um, literally of any kind. It would be great. So. <laughs> Uh, so I just want to start by, by saying that um, it's been interesting to work on the history of satellite communications, because, in part because it's substantially less well known than the contemporary history of the space race, um, also in the 1960s, right, which is in the midst of a significant commemorative resurgence here in the United States, um, including not only, uh, you know, in such major movies uh, as Hidden Figures, but also in my own local coffee shop. Uh, where kind of imagery of the 1960s space race has become a sort of marketing tool. And I think this, you know, of course, connects to uh, the upcoming anniversary of Apollo 11, um, but also, I think, to a kind of broader search for a kind of usable past of the United States, right, at a confident time, right? Um, and this is also reflected in uh, hit movies like Hidden Figures, um, although I think the kind of recent uh, space race, boom of space race films also shows some complexity because in addition to Hidden Figures, there was another movie about the kind of space race military industrial complex uh, with a much darker vision, also starring Octavia Spencer, which is The Shape of Water, last year's Oscar winner for yes. Best Picture. Right, so there's sort of real burst of interest in revisiting the, the space race, but very little interest in revisiting the history of satellite communications. Um, so with this kind of overwhelming interest in the history of manned spaceflight, 
um, satellite communications have not been fully integrated into our understanding of space history. So this you know, briefly raises the question, why is it so forgotten? And I'm happy to say more in the questions and answers, sort of overdetermined. Um, but first, it's you know, obviously not a story of national achievement, um, which uh, kind of most distinguished space scholar Asif Siddiqui has identified as central to space historiography, right? It's an implicitly global and transnational medium from the very beginning. Um, it's the kind of blended military and kind of civilian commercial activities of satellites, as Lisa Parks has noted, um, also has contributed to their invisibility. Um, they are also, of course, literally hidden up in space. Um, and even their earthly infrastructure, which I'll talk a little bit about today, um, has to be in remote areas to avoid radio signal interference. So unlike many other media networks, um, it's not mapped onto kind of existing networks as directly. It's rarely in urban areas, unlike um, other kinds of, of new media networks like data centers and things like that that we have now. Um, moreover, the case of satellites doesn't fit terribly comfortably into our existing narrative of Soviet science and technology um, that has, you know, not to overstate this, to some extent exaggerated, uh, emphasized distinctiveness and failure relative to a kind of freer and better funded United States. Um, and this is evident even in such a wonderful project as Ben Peters' recent book, How Not to Network a Nation, even though in the introduction he works very um, assertively and kind of generously against that framework, it's kind of baked into his title, right, that there's kind of two nations trying to do rival things and one fails. Um, so this kind of general version, furthermore, I think uh, within space historiography, there's a kind of aversion to writing about a field in which the Soviet achievement with Sputnik is so central, right? I've, read quite a few um, very kind of wonderful NASA-affiliated histories, um, which tend to emphasize right away in the introduction how very little Sputnik mattered to the history of communication satellites. Um, right? We were doing this anyway, right? Sputnik was not important, really not important. Um, so in this sense, uh, you know, I think it's worth, I have to, I'll need to hear from you too about what kind of background to even explain how these satellites worked in this kind of earlier period that we're looking at. Um, but let me say very briefly that in the first two decades of global satellite communications, from the mid-1960s through the mid-1980s, satellite traffic was divided unequally between two rival intergovernmental satellite communications organizations corresponding to rival Cold War blocs, or at least that's the kind of standard story. Um, one of them was called Intelsat and created in 1964 um, and was largely dominated by the United States. Um, the other was called Intersputnik, uh, which was led and largely dominated by the Soviet Union um, and formed after several years of kind of public announcements and negotiations in 1971. Um, both of them uh, they have quite a bit in common though and that's part of what this talk is about. So both of them occupied an ambiguous position between the, the private and public sectors. Both of them were originally created as explicitly for-profit commercial endeavors. Um, so while the institutional history of Intelsat has been relatively well documented, by former telecommunications executives and a small community of historians of space and communications. Um, even the very existence of Intersputnik remains relatively little known among both Western and I think also to some extent Russian scholars. Um, so Lars and I were very excited therefore to meet Frankie, the former technical supervisor of the first Intelsat Earth Station in the Eastern Bloc at an Italian restaurant in Prague's Old Town last spring. <laughs> so the Earth Station Frankie helped direct at Sedletsperchitsa um, was built outside Prague in 1974 and features three large steerable, featured at the time three large steerable satellite dishes. Um, one pointed at the Soviet Union's geostationary Stationary satellite 
and two other dishes pointed at Intelsat satellites over the Indian and Atlantic oceans, pulling in signals from both. So the satellites Purchitsa's Earth Station's original function had been to bring the two rival networks and their superpower sponsors closer together by linking the networks and creating a satellite hotline between Washington and Moscow as a backup for the undersea cable hotline um, established after the Cuban Missile Crisis. So Sedlitz Perchitsa was one of the first two Intelsat Earth stations um, constructed in the Eastern Bloc, um, along with two Soviet Molniya system Earth stations in the US, um, following this agreement by US President Richard Nixon and Soviet General Secretary Leonid Brezhnev in 1971. Um, so the satellite hotline connection, at least in Sedlitz Perchitsa, <coughs> was a kind of tertiary level of backup. And it's not actually visible on this map that the New York Times provided of where the new uh, satellite link would go, although of course, you know, making the satellite link appear on a terrestrial map is also kind of a visual challenge. Um, okay, so beyond making sure that, that this hotline was functioning, uh, it took up very little of their time at the Earth Station, as Frankie told us. The Earth Station's primary function was the transmission of television broadcasts and arranging satellite telephone links, um, and the work, as Frankie remembered, it was fairly relaxed. He remembered going hunting in the surrounding countryside with the local staff who lived in the village and watching a favorite Cuban TV show. Um, so the Earth Station thus functioned as a kind of minor link or bridge between Cold War aligned satellite communications networks. Um, and Frankie described the history of the village itself in terms that echoed this role. So Sedlitz Perchitsa, as he told us, was historically two towns with a stream running between them. The villagers fought frequently, um, throwing stones across the stream. Uh, they were unable to agree to plans to build a bridge joining the towns. Finally, Frankie explained a local landowner decided he would build a bridge and unite the towns, but the village would need a new shared name. And the villagers couldn't agree on a way to combine the names, should it be Perchletz or Sedice, so they simply kept both names and hyphenated them. Um, so Frankie's story offers in microcosm one portrait of the Cold War history of the creation of a global satellite infrastructure. The new institutions, personal infrastructural networks, and the web of technical installations around the globe in which the village of Sedlitz Perchitsa was one small but important node. Uh, the two warring irreconcilable sides are clear enough. The landlord and his bridge in turn kind of echoes this long-standing transnational fantasy of greater global understanding through media, which also often has a kind of imperial uh, history to it. Um, yet this small kind of parable of, of a satellite earth station town that Frankie shared with us, like the larger history of satellite communications, also reflects um, a history of Cold War media globalization that we haven't fully assimilated. So the bridge may not have fully resolved the tensions between the two towns, but it was a bridge nonetheless. Um, so I'd like to focus today on what the history of satellite infrastructures like the Intelsat and Intersputnik organizations and the global network of Earth stations like the one Frankie ran um, can tell us about Cold War history and about the origins of the present space economy, uh, which is of course highly globalized and chiefly commercial, following a model first established not in manned spaceflight, but in satellite communications. Um, so basing our inquiry in part on what Jeffrey Bowker calls an in infrastructural inversion, focusing on otherwise invisible infrastructures and tracing their emergence and change over time, um, we found that the highly contested negotiations to create satellite communications institutions for these networks did not really fit the standard story in the very limited existing literature, um, or, which is a story of clear US dominance and scientific and economic triumph over the Soviet Union in this new geopolitical and economic sector. Um, instead, we argue that the search for evidence of superiority or domination, winners and losers, conceals a much more interesting, complicated story of integration, interaction, and mutual influence. 
Indeed, communication satellites infrastructure largely followed the pattern that European historians of technology have described as hidden integration, in which technical networks such as gas pipelines in Europe, um, to mention only Per Hoxelius's landmark study, connected European countries across Cold War alliance lines, undermi undermining prevailing geopolitical logics. Um, so while early US dominance in satellite communications is indisputable, the construction of physical and institutional infrastructure for international satellite communications also reveals the socialist world's active and influential, if highly unequal and asymmetrical, role in shaping the institutions of economic and media globalization. At the same time, politicians, technocrats, and publics on both sides of the Iron Curtain were influenced by a shared set of hopes and fears about what this new technology could mean. So we're trying to sort of build on the emerging literature on the kind of shared Cold War culture as well. Um, so I'll look at two cases today that illustrate the extent of this integration and mutual influence. Um, and the first is the creation of kind of political administrative institutions for satellite communications. The emergence of Intelsat and Intersputnik as ostensibly separate, but in fact always partially integrated satellite communications organizations from the late 1960s. Um, and then, hopefully, all within my time, move on to the promotion, construction, and celebration of Earth stations like the one in Sedlitz Perchitsa around the globe in the 1970s. Um, so the early rhetoric surrounding satellite communications linked it, as with many past and future new media, uh, with visions of kind of global reach, synchronization, and world peace and justice. Um, and it was this context that US President Lyndon B. Johnson used in his August 14, 1967, special message to the Congress on communication policy to invite the Soviet bloc countries to join Intelsat, forming a single global communications network. Um, so in his invitation, Johnson emphasized Intelsat's ostensibly apolitical nature. Intelsat, he claims, is not a political organization. It holds no ideological goal, except that it's good for nations to communicate efficiently with one another. Um, this claim glossed over significant concerns in Congress, especially as the US was drawn more deeply into the Vietnam War, about the US's ability to profit from its enormous investment in space technology. Um, and there's a whole world of kind of uh, angry AT&T-centric histories about how NASA came and stole satellite communications in order to kind of demonstrate that the space that they invested in was going to pay for itself. It wasn't only going to be an expensive hobby. Um, Um, okay. So indeed, by the mid-60s, the Intelsat organization was already riven by conflicts between the US representative within Intelsat, the ComSat organization, and Intelsat's Western European partners. Um, ComSat sought to maximize Intelsat's profits by buying the lowest cost technology, generally produced by US manufacturers, um, while in return for their substantial investment in Intelsat, Western European members wanted a guaranteed share of Intelsat's contracts to develop their own high-tech manufacturing sectors. Um, moreover, many Western European members felt strongly that Intelsat should seek Eastern European membership as energetically as possible. Um, and these conflicts led Intelsat's Western European members to insist that the organization's initial structure, created in 1964 and heavily weighted toward US interests, be based on interim agreements only, with the renegotiation set for 1969. Um, and it was in this context of financial urgency, conflict, and pending renegotiation of its charter that Intelsat sought to expand its membership as rapidly as possible, including renewed outreach to the Soviet bloc. Um, this was an economic and political challenge rather than a technical one. So Johnson's, as Johnson's message pointed out, there was no, quote, no insurmountable technical obstacle to an eventual linking of the Soviet domestic broadcasting uh, satellite system, Molnia, uh, which came into service in 1967 with the Intelsat system, and many reasons to do so. 
And it's worth noting here in this kind of Soviet image from Pravda at the kind of announcement of this new satellite network that was exclusively domestic at this point, um, just before the first kind of broadcast for the anniversary of the, the 50th anniversary of the revolution, which is when this is launched on Soviet televisions, um, the kind of deeply kind of country borders focus of this image, right? These satellites simply will not go outside of our lovely, sharp, crisp outline. Um, and this is a theme that I'll return to in the kind of coverage of satellites as a strictly national kind of medium, uh, despite that not being really true at all. Um, Ah, yes. So Johnson's statement reiterated long-standing US arguments in favor of a single global network, um, which he claimed would reduce international conflict by facilitating global communication and exchange. Internally, however, the US and its Western European partners indicated that the most important reason for including the Soviet Union in Intelsat was to prevent, quote, unnecessary competition for Intelsat, preventing a Soviet-led network from undercutting their prices and retaining control over the lucrative work of manufacturing high-tech components and constructing earth stations, these new infrastructural facilities featuring large parabolic antennae or satellite dishes um, needed at this point, early point in development to send and receive radio signals to, to and from satellites in space around the globe. So it's worth pointing out that this is all, the period I'm talking about today is all before the arrival of direct-to-home broadcasting, right? So this is why you still have to have um, these big stations to kind of be able to make the signal high enough quality to receive and transmit. And then it's transmitted from ground earth stations along traditional kind of radio or cable networks. Um, in this sense, the satellite communications negotiations of 1967-69 were a kind of failure for the US and for Intelsat. Intersputnik was created as a rival global network led by the USSR, uh, even though its significance as a competitor for market share was always very limited, um, even after its own geostationary satellites became operational in the second half of the 70s. Um, but in fact, the networks were never truly as separate as they seemed. Um, and cooperation, exchange, and integration across the Cold War political divide was a central goal from the beginning. Um, while many commentators at the time and since felt sure that the Soviet side would have an ideological objection to Intelsat's commercial goals and organizational structure, um, this was far from the case. So efforts to create a Soviet-led international satellite network that would provide an alternative to Intelsat had begun by April 1967 at a meeting of Mo in Moscow of Intercosmos an organization for international scientific cooperation in space led by the Soviet Academy of Sciences and created in November 1965. Um, so finally, just after the Molina Network began regular broadcasting, uh, technical specialists from all the future founding members of what would become Intersputnik um, were invited to Moscow to work out technical plans for such an organization. And this is a later journal article, but you know, they're, they're deciding in this moment, you know, Intersputnik, um, <laughs> what will we do with this? Um, the working group's correspondence in spring 68 was characterized by some urgency because the head of Intercosmos, academician B.N. Petrov, hoped to officially announce the creation of the organization at the UN meeting on peaceful uses of outer space in Vienna in August 1968. Um, so they approved these articles and select the name Intersputnik just before August 1968. Um, now the Intersputnik draft articles of agreement emphasized very clearly that this network was to be founded on very different principles than Intelsat although principles that sounded enormously familiar from President Johnson's rhetoric the year before. Um, this project, the articles claimed, is built on principles of international cooperation, equality, and mutual benefit of all participants. Um, the main basis for this claim was the proposed decision-making body, a council not unlike the UN General Assembly, in which each member country would receive one vote, regardless of its level of investment um, or its use of the network's infrastructure or services, also for a fee. 
Um, Intelsat, by contrast, was governed from 1964 by a body that used weighted voting, giving countries that invested in and used the network a much greater share of decision-making power um, and leaving the US with more than 50% of votes. Um, like Intelsat, however, Intersputnik was intended to be global in its ambition and membership, and the articles proposed sending out, uh, quote, to other countries like France, the Arab countries, India, Pakistan, Burma, and others, to clarify the possibility of their participation in the proposed system. So the idea of an alternative socialist-led international satellite network was presented as both a rebuke and a rival to Intelsat. Uh, but how strong of a rebuke was it really? The Soviet bloc was proposing a network that was explicitly designed to attract non-socialist members, and in fact strongly resembled what Western European members of Intelsat were seeking in that organization's permanent arrangement negotiations, including a new organizational structure that would balance the United States' overwhelming dominance. Um, indeed, the Soviet announcement in August 1968 had been supported behind the scenes by France and Switzerland, who hoped at a minimum to weaken US influence in Intelsat's upcoming negotiations, and at best to bring about a proliferation of regional satellite organizations, of which one would be Western European. In the months after the announcement in Vienna, they continued these efforts. So for example, on September 25th, 1968, a diplomat in the Soviet embassy in Washington, um, V.A. Rachiev, met for lunch with his Swiss counterpart in charge of space affairs, um, who urged the USSR to release information about Intersputnik's capacity and the date when it would come into service in order to, quote, strike another blow to the US position within Intelsat. In response, you know, Rachel kind of points out, you know, we would love to do that, but we can't announce it because we don't know how many Europeans who could help fund this organization will in fact join, right? They're kind of aware that the Europeans are playing them off uh, and flirting with them and unlikely to actually be able to join Intersputnik. Um, so this regionalist vision articulated by Western European countries in negotiation with the Soviets um, suggests that the idea that Intersputnik was genuinely different in principle from Intelsat was not very well-founded. Um, instead, as both sides acknowledged internally, Intersputnik's organizational structure was closely modeled on that of Intelsat. Um, Intersputnik was conceived from the beginning, as I said earlier, as a commercial entity legally independent from the Soviet government that would eventually own its own space segment or satellites. Um, and Soviet claims about the kind of superior egalitarianism of Intersputnik's one country, one vote governance structure concealed the fact that the rest of its articles very closely resembled the Intelsat's 1964 structure with only minor adjustments that reflected changes Western Europeans themselves sought within Intelsat. Um, so despite arguments at the time and since that the Soviet Union objected to Intelsat's for-profit structure, uh, the Intersputnik proposal that was made public in August 1968 reflected not a uniquely socialist alternative to Intelsat, but rather a consensus position forged in interaction across the Cold War divide. Um, Moreover, in talks with the US Embassy and other channels between August and December 1968, and again, this is in advance of the renegotiation of Intelsat's charter in February 1969, Soviet diplomats conveyed their willingness to abandon the only real distinguishing feature of the Intersputnik proposal, the one country, one vote governing structure. Um, so in an August 1768 telegram, just days after the Intersputnik proposal was announced in Vienna, the US Deputy Chief of Mission in Moscow reported that Soviet diplomats had raised the subject of terms for Soviet entry into Intelsat. Soviet diplomats told their US interlocutors that they were flexible about requiring a one country, one vote decision-making body within Intelsat, stressing that some assurances regarding, quote, some assurances, RE, purchase and use of Soviet communications equipment in third countries, end quote, might serve as an adequate incentive for Soviet membership. In other words, their biggest motive uh, was economic, right? Access to this new global market for space communications technology. Um, moreover, this was not simply a case of kind of Soviet mimicry of Western institutions in its own separate sandbox. 
Um, the boundaries between the two networks were initially not firmly set at all, um, and the possibility of Soviet entry into Intelsat stayed open at least through February 1969. Um, and instead of two separate opposing networks, internal conversations on both sides revealed that some form of integration of the Soviet domestic satellite network, Molnia, with Intelsat <laughs> was always the expected outcome on both sides. Um, the question was on what terms, not whether this integration should be accomplished. Um, and even before the Intersputnik proposal, no one on either side uh, seems to have considered the possibility that Soviet the Soviet domestic satellite network would not eventually be linked to Intelsat. Um, as a March 68 report by the State Bureau of Intelligence and Research pointed out, the integration of Molnia into Intelsat without Soviet membership would allow the Soviets both political and economic benefits. It could, quote, stay out of what it may feel as a US-operated club, yet at the same time plug Molnia into a world hookup and accordingly enhance its international standing and earnings, end quote. Um, the State Department was open to this possible arrangement um, and in November 1968 informed its embassies that it saw no objection to allowing non-Intelsat members, quote, direct access to the system, provided financial terms were set so that non-members didn't have an advantage over members. Um, so Soviet negotiations with its socialist world allies also made clear that integration and exchange with Intelsat would be a central function of the new Intersputnik network. Um, in the summer of 67, Intercosmos sent out surveys asking, among other questions, whether and when each potential member country would require access to the Intelsat system. Um, several of the respondents indicated that they saw Intersputnik as a route to greater global integration and exchange, particularly of television programming. Um, and when the Intersputnik proposal was finalized in June 1968, it included a chapter on cooperation with, quote, capitalist country satellite systems, which can only mean Intelsat. That was the only one. Um, so there was great interest in having, quote, one or two rebroadcast stations uh, that would be able to work simultaneously with multiple satellite communications, um, a vision that was eventually realized with Sedlets Purchase. Um, so for Soviet diplomats, integration was actually a higher priority than creating a separate international network in the first place. Um, and this became evident when the hope for interest from countries outside the Soviet bloc failed to materialize. Um, so as of December 15, 1968, an internal memo reported 32 countries beyond the founding members had received the Soviet <coughs> proposal and not one had replied yet. The <laughs> it was a bummer. <laughs> the memorandum went on to outline several possible next steps, depending on how many and which countries ultimately did decide to join Intersputnik. Um, and they basically ran the economic calculations. They could, they could form it if they had a few wealthy countries, like the Europeans, the Western Europeans, or a large number of developing world potential users, right, who could pay fees and support. So it's an entirely kind of economic calculation. Can we afford to do this based on who's interested in playing with us? Um, so this planning process, you know, after March 69, is chiefly about economic viability. Um, however, even if Intersputnik was not created, this memo echoed the U.S. State Department's sense that cooperation with Intelsat could take place through, quote, mutual use of communication channels or the acceptance of traffic from countries belonging to Intelsat by socialist black earth stations and further transmission of this traffic through landlines to countries that are not members of Intelsat. Um, so other forms of cooperation could be possible as well, the memo <laughs> concluded. Um, so in effect, the Soviet Ministry of Foreign Affairs position in advance of the Intelsat negotiations in February 1969 was almost entirely flexible and contingent. Uh, the only consistent part of their plan was some form of informal integration and cooperation with Intelsat. Um, now you could respond that Soviet flexibility on the specific form of satellite network integration reflected the country's very weak negotiating position in the face of an Intelsat network that was already well established and gaining new members rapidly. And this is certainly true. Um, but to stop there would be to kind of ignore the impact the Intersputnik proposal also had within the US government. 
um, and ultimately on the governing structure of Intelsat itself, since it came at this kind of pivotal moment when Intelsat was being redesigned. Um, in a memo to Secretary of State Dean Rusk about the Intersputnik announcement in Vienna, Assistant Secretary of State for Economic Affairs Anthony Solomon acknowledged that the Intersputnik proposal was, quote, structurally similar to the existing Intelsat arrangements, except that it provides for decision-making in a council with voting by one country, one vote. In response, he proposed that the State Department consider reviving a 1967 proposal to create an annual assembly within Intelsat that would have, quote, quite limited powers, but vote on the basis of one country, one vote. Um, the memo that Rusk sent to President Johnson a few days later likewise concluded that looking forward to the Intelsat negotiations in February, we should be prepared to make such changes in the structure as are necessary and acceptable to continue the very broad support this organization has built. So they're sufficiently threatened by the kind of Soviet proposal of this form of governance structure uh, that they're willing to adopt it, and indeed they do. So now on to actually building Earth stations, right, which is part of what's at stake here in the kind of economics of this uh, new network. Um, so the construction of territorial infrastructures for these new networks um, likewise reflected a process of reciprocal influence. Um, so while participation in the space segment of satellite communication systems was ultimately controlled largely by the two superpower governments that monopolized orbital launch capacity until at least the late 60s, um, the ground segment, a network of Earth stations that could receive satellite signals and redistribute them, uh, was open to more participants, including corporate actors. Um, and the negotiations over constructing Earth stations were very closely linked to negotiations over network membership. So the idea was that construction of an Earth station compatible with a particular network satellite was seen as a way to secure the participation, particularly of post-colonial successor states, um, in a particular network. Um, so experimental ground stations had been operating um, that's the wrong place. Here we go. since uh, the late 1950s in the US, Brazil, France, UK, Germany, Italy, and Japan, um, by the mid-60s with support from the US State Department and as part of efforts to ensure that AT&T did not monopolize this new telecommunications medium, um, RCA and Hughes were granted NASA satellite contracts and RCA began to actively promote its services as a designer and builder of satellite earth stations. Um, so RCA's marketing materials kind of reflect the relationship we would expect to find uh, between the growth of this ostensibly peaceful use of space and military Cold War alliances. Um, so the kind of confident assertion of an exclusive relationship between membership and the US-led, quote, free world and access to high technology. Um, though the Soviet Union was, in 1964, still only kind of planning a network of domestic ground stations, um, announcing plans uh, for an international network in 1966, uh, a 1964 RCA pamphlet reflected a kind of eagerness to denigrate the Soviet role and exclude it from this new sector. Um, the brochure also predicated its offers of assistance on potential clients' firm alliance with the U.S. over the USSR. So the brochure's text indicated that RCA uh, was willing to make it's significant resources available to, quote, any nation in the free world that may wish to consider participation in a satellite communications system. Um, RCA also explicitly linked its offer to the power and technical superiority of the US military, listing the military research divisions of RCA in a list of facilities to which Earth Station clients <coughs> would have access. Um, and this blurring of lines is reinforced by the brochure's illustrations, which included photographs of military satellite communications ground stations that RCA had built they were, had not yet built at this point in 64. They're at civilian ones, so they all had to be military pictures, um, as well as illustrations that made visible what were otherwise secret and inaccessible government technical installations. So this kind of, you know, pull away the veil of this radio that's a kind of meant to control interference in these early earth stations. Um, you know, RCA needed to access to this secret. 
secret concealed technology. Um, in fact, however, the idea of US dominance in this new economic and technical sector, as we've already seen, was alienating to other countries um, in the post-colonial world, but also among US allies in Western Europe who wished to participate in the lucrative high-tech manufacturing contracts promised by the expansion of this sector. Um, so European and Arab world plans for separate regional networks, um, anathema from the US perspective, were realized by the second half of the 70s. Um, and Earth station construction was similarly open to non-US firms. Uh, and the Department of Commerce does kind of reporting on how much of these, how many of these firms are, or these earth stations are built by US companies. Um, and by, as of May 1976, it was only 20% of Intelsat earth stations that were built by, um, um, by American firms. And the US Department of Commerce uh, expected US competitiveness to further decline from this point. Um, moreover, it turned out that the location of satellite earth stations you know, could not be determined exclusively by Cold War Alliance status, given that the planning of earth station locations was an inherently regional question um, and was driven by calculations about financial sustainability. There's all these wonderful like RAND reports about imaginary countries named Latina that are determined <laughs> <laughs> to be in South America, right? And how they think about their neighbors and whom they can serve. If they build an earth station first, can they get their traffic to make it financially viable and how to calculate that? Um, so Yugoslavia was certainly one case of this, and they decided to build an Intelsat earth station based on financial calculations that assumed it would carry traffic for several Soviet bloc neighbors. Um, and in addition to these two Intelsat earth stations on Soviet territory uh, from 1974, um, and then also in Czechoslovakia, uh, there's one built in Romania that's an Intelsat station, and in Cuba in 1979. Um, that are kind of constructed alongside intersputnik stations. Um, in the Cuban case, it's in order to provide additional capacity for the Sixth Summit of Non-Allied Countries in September 1979. So kind of providing communication support for major global news events um, for a specific high-profile event was a kind of frequent reason for crossing Cold War network boundaries. And I found in you know, um, Intelsat sort of training manuals and seminars for its kind of member states that they frequently refer to non-standard earth stations, which I think is a kind of euphemism for you know, either military ones that you might use temporarily or Soviet ones that they simply won't mention by name, right? There's this kind of non-invisibility uh, you know, of uh, the, the fact of collaboration across these lines to, to make visible certain kinds of news events. Um, so when Intersputnik starts to expand its earth station network in the late 70s, it likewise built earth stations in countries that already had Intelsat stations, such as Iraq. Um, and in all these cases, kind of practical, regional, and commercial considerations, um, rivalries within Cold War blocs, and the desire of individual governments to participate in this new space age communications network in specific ways were the most significant factors shaping decisions about where Earth stations were constructed. Um, at the same time, the technical features of this generation of satellite Earth stations also complicated efforts to build either a single global network or even two exclusive rival networks. Um, it quickly emerged that most, most Earth station satellite dishes would be relatively easy to reorient toward a rival space segment, a feature known as steerability. Um, and this feature of Earth stations raised kind of for the US and Intelsat in particular, the specter of insecure alliances and changing loyalties, particularly among the newly independent countries of the post-colonial world. So just days after the Intersputnik announcement in Vienna in 1968, a White House official wrote again to Anthony Solomon, the Assistant Secretary of State for Economic Affairs, um, warning him that even if countries had already invested in an Intelsat Earth Station, there would be, quote, no insuperable problem in reorienting the Earth Station antenna toward a, a different space segment, such as one provided by the Soviet Union or another regional network. I am sure, he urged in conclusion, 
that, quote, you will agree that the United States ought to make every reasonable effort to keep the faces of these nations turned toward the West, end quote. Um, so these fears about the kind of flexibility of alliance status in this, built into this infrastructure um, were reflected in the images that corporations and national telecom agencies produced of satellite earth stations and networks. Um, since they were remote like satellites themselves, earth stations had to be made visible and explained and celebrated and kind of uh, in order to facilitate their promotion and sale to state telecom, telecom officials and ultimately broader publics who were asked to support investment in this expensive new technology. Um, and the result was the wide circulation of photographs of the new earth stations and postcards, popular scientific films, and even postal stamps issued by the countries who built them. Um, so we'll look at a few of these, but they reflect a kind of shared, although in some cases differently articulated set of fears about this new technology. Um, and these images were put to work in part to, or to reassure actors on all sides um, by presenting space as both apolitical and discreetly <coughs> national in order to avoid questions of power and fears about the fluidity of Cold War alliances, or particularly you know, many of the fears in the 60s around uncontrolled cross-border media flows because people, as they build these earth stations, are very well aware that direct-to-home broadcasting by a satellite is coming. Um, so the architecture of the earth stations themselves, as well as the photographs and artist renderings promoting them, um, presented stations as a kind of mirror image of what manned space flight promised in the 1960s. Rather than escape from Earth, a transformation of Earth in space's peaceful and cooperative image, the sort of moon colonies at home. Um, so in this way, these images you know, reflect a kind of effort to assuage or efface the fears of these new uh, media infrastructures raised. And my favorite uh, set of images are these postal stamps. Um, start with Gabon. Um, this is also a kind of you know, uh, research image rights tactic, which is to buy your own images on eBay. <laughs> so this is all part of my personal collection of Jewish <laughs> related stamps. So I have full rights to them. Um, <laughs> so as a group, images of Earth stations on postage stamps generally represent space as both apolitical and discreetly national. Again, so rather than global, transnational, or contested. Many stamps, of course, on some level this is obvious. You wouldn't expect a national postal stamp to like show somebody else's flag, right? Um, but it's striking how much they have in common, these images. Um, many stamps commemorating the opening of an Earth station, station focus very narrowly on the station itself and its futuristic modern architecture, often set in a kind of characteristic national landscape, as in this Gabonese stamp. Um, and in both this, and there's also a Icelandic one to give you a sense of how different countries could have very similar stamps, right? The sort of sense of here is this wonderful piece of technology in our national landscape, as it were. Um, this Gabonese one is also quite inflected with um, all sorts of historical, um, this isn't the one, it's a different one. Um, hold on, that's still Iceland. There we go. Um, yes. Right, so it's named after various kind of revolutionary events in the state's post-colonial history. The artist is a French uh, artist, however, who specializes in art for stamps in the post kind of Francophone African world. Um, so there's these kind of layers of, of imperial, since much of this, you know, kind of the aesthetics of uh, infrastructure um, based on Brian Larkin's work on electrification in Nigeria, right, the sort of uh, imperial sublime of infrastructural connection um, comes out in these stamps as well, but it's quite constrained here to this particular site um, of modernity and direct contact with space for the nation. Um, in these stamps, as in many others, there's kind of no sense of this transnational network or Cold War alliance, certainly, 
um, or the associated obligations or fears of influence or betrayal that would accompany the arrival of an Earth station. Um, so some other Earth station stamps likewise emphasize the kind of, they emphasize in some ways the global nature of satellite communications. There's this one that does actually show a satellite in the frame as well. Um, give, but again, there's this kind of sense of direct contact between ground segment and space segment um, made explicit by showing the satellite in space in sort of a new visual dialogue with their new Earth station. Um, and yes, this Republic of Djibouti stamp follows these conventions. Um, so although the satellite is present, it's kind of unmoored from its geopolitical and institutional context um, that placed it in space in the first place, right? There's no rocket. Um, and this presentation of a kind of decontextualized satellite uh, is even more striking on this very delightful Israeli stamp, <laughs> a hot contender for the cover, let me tell you. <laughs> um, you know, where the uh, satellite is domesticated through an artistic representation that's rounded, colorful, and cute. Um, so here the UN's resolution on the peaceful use of outer space appears in the kind of visual vocabulary of global hippiedom. Um, <laughs> there are some exceptions, I should say, though they are a very small percentage of the stamps that we surveyed, um, but there are some that do indicate, right, the kind of connectedness via the satellite to a kind of global setting, although again, the Greek one has a little Grecian column that the that Earth station is located on, kind of anchoring it in a sort of national achievement, right? Because um, the US and socialist world images of satellite Earth stations um, on stamps and also in postcards and brochures um, share kind of common themes with these national stamps of Intelsat member countries. Um, so images of Earth stations promoted by ComSat and RCA and other firms um, tend to highlight the ways that Earth stations uh, would bring spa the space age down to Earth, right? They, this photograph of a U.S. Earth station in Puerto Rico uses a darkened sky in the background, like the artistic rendering earlier, um, to link this Earth station to the star universe beyond the reaches of our sun. Um, so taken as a group, these you know, images, of which there are many more examples, um, not only respond to these widespread fears about the new medium, but may have even contributed to the current invisibility of satellite communications technology um, in both the scholarly and popular imaginations. Um, so one reason why we're so unfamiliar with this story um, is that this idea of such interconnection uh, was, at, like these bridges produced by places like Sedlets Perchitsa, were unsettling to countries engaged in building their very first Earth stations. Um, so we see the distinctiveness, we can see the kind of distinctiveness of these postal stamp images uh, by contrasting them with the visualizations of the network produced by Intelsat and Intersputnik themselves. Um, so in internal publications, Intelsat depicted Earth stations as nodes in a highly centralized network with Intelsat <laughs> at its center, as in this 1983 image, where Earth stations appear as kind of place names arrayed on spokes running out from an enormous Intelsat satellite at center stage. So this is a kind of imperial view of the Earth station network in which the Intelsat satellite sits securely at the center among a long list of network hubs neatly grouped by continent. Um, and once again, this, you know, again, though mixing socialist and, um, and non-socialist world countries up by grouping them geographically. Um, so once again, this network appears genuinely global, but still hierarchical and stable rather than contested or problematic. Um, and ironically, this image was produced as part of Intelsat's efforts to defend itself against the first efforts to fully privatize international satellite communications under President Reagan. Um, so this image is a kind of defensive posture, right, against threats to this very stability that it depicts. Um, so it was never an accurate representation, even at the height of Intelsat's dominance, it would soon be completely unimaginable. Um, Intersputnik's own representation of Earth stations, um, like their Intelsat counterparts, uh, we emphasize the promises of imperial modernization, 
you know, highlighting the contrast again between space age Earth stations, which are very much, you know, I started working on this and immediately started thinking about um, Disney World's Epcot Center, right? There's this whole world of like buckyball shaped domes in the 60s, and this is just one more set, right? Um, you know, so they, and I did buy some like fan videos of writing in the world of tomorrow as part of, but that was a path I did not end up going down. Um, so these, they highlight the contrast between space age earth stations and the countries they serve, particularly in images like these, typically in the kind of Asian places that they worked, right? So depicting the contrast as the Soviet uh, imperial providers of this infrastructure. Um, and it was always Soviet workers who went out and installed the new earth stations, right? So this issue of kind of managing whose people get to learn how to make and install these new technologies. Uh, it was very much Russian technical workers who always did it, at least according to our informant. Um, nonetheless, right from this position in Moscow, what could be more charming than the juxtaposition of people riding camels with this hypermodern uh, space age earth station, right? So there's a similar kind of imperial self-satisfaction um, that is visible, and here's one in Mongolia as well, right, with people in traditional clothing in front of the earth station. Um, and this is all from Intersputnik's own kind of 50th anniversary commemorative volume, which I very much enjoyed receiving. Um, okay, almost done here. Christy, sorry, yes. to, do you mind if I ask a question or would you rather I wait for I'm the literally end? almost done, but you could ask it now. Why not? Uh, I was just wondering, the image in the back, is that an earth station or is that a gear? Well, no, it is a gear, isn't <laughs> okay. it? Yes, it totally is. I wasn't sure right. if it was an earth station that was deliberately designed to look like a gear? Like a gear, or? yeah. Mm -hmm. No, they've been meeting while watching national games, I guess, oh, okay. their costumes, um, in Mongolia. You're right, and look at the mistake that I made, right? The gear has a kind of space <laughs> age uh, vibe to it, um, but this is in the Intersputnik kind of 50th uh, anniversary, um, you know, publication, right? So this gathering of all their employees together in front of the gear, right? This sort of, the space age station doesn't entirely have to be present. Right. convey the kind of juxtaposition of these peoples coming together for this modern reason, but I won't, you're right that I won't call that an earth station again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so in some sense, you know, some of the more unusual, some of the, Soviet, the socialist world stamps are really quite striking. I do think there's a slightly greater amount of, um, in this set of Orbita stamps for the, uh, this is the Molnia system, this is the nature of satellites and the television products is called Orbita. Um, there's some other satellites that are also called Orbita. Um, but they, they do emphasize, precisely because it's a safely domestic system, right? You've got the red star on the television screen and this kind of very crisp, again, national outline again. Um, so while it doesn't isolate the Earth station, there's nonetheless the kind of reassuring sense that this connectivity is limited um, to our space. This is one that I'm really hoping someone in the audience who knows about Czechoslovak history will be able to tell me who this wonderful lady, and I have asked other Czech scholars and have not been able to find out. Um, but there is a kind of greater emphasis in the Socialist World Earth Station stamps um, on human figures. Um, and it sort of supports the late Svetlana Boyum's argument that unlike American outer space, the Soviet cosmos was imagined as a kind of harmonious realm where human or divine presence is made manifest, right? There's a sort of goddess in space connecting the satellite. Um, and so I, someone, someday someone will tell me what sort of muse figure this is, but it may just be a muse, I'm not sure. Um, at the same time, this you know, insistence that satellites existed to serve human needs on Earth. So one Soviet educational film about satellites opened somewhat incongruously with a lengthy romantic scene between a young couple on a beach. Um, likewise kind of worked to assuage before moving on to tell about how satellites would help with predicting the weather so that they were safe there, that kind of thing. Um, likewise worked to kind of assuage concerns about this threateningly globalizing uh, features of this new network uh, with images of a benign apolitical modernization 
Um, so even this apparently distinctive kind of socialist human face uh, kind of satellite communications um, also still fell within the shared rhetoric of benign peaceful global unification um, that was another sort of defense against the anxiety of satellite communications since the early 60s. Okay, I'll wrap up. Um, so claims that the U.S. and Intelsat built a global satellite infrastructure in an orderly way along clear Cold War alliance lines um, that conceals a much messier reality of interconnection, rivalry, mutual influence, and shared concerns. Um, the history of satellite communications during the Cold War can thus help us interrogate triumphalist accounts of the U.S.'s role in economic and media globalization during the Cold War. Because um, I found that you know, while there's wonderful new critical work on the history of satellite communications, because media studies scholars often don't, well, many of them work globally, but many don't, um, and this kind of critical instinct to criticize U.S. corporate power, which I certainly salute, um, can actually lead to the kind of reproduction of a sense that the U.S. everywhere triumphs and dominates, right, and sort of hides some of the fragility and the kind of weakness um, uh, that the U.S. could experience in the face of a kind of very asymmetrical, even, kind of rival. Um, all right, so... It gives us a sense of the kind of real, if asymmetrical, influence of socialist and developing world actors, as well as Western Europeans, in shaping the process of economic and media globalization. Um, this experience of trying to create a single global network and ending up with multiple competing regional networks also offered some important lessons for the incoming Nixon administration in 1969. Um, so already in Nixon's first months in office, US officials were proposing to launch a program of US-Soviet space cooperation, um, in part in order to distract this is something I found explicitly in the Nixon Library, uh, to distract young people um, and give them something positive to focus on as an alternative to the war in Vietnam. Um, so this cooperation, Nixon administration officials noted, should be shaped by lessons learned in the recent Intelsat negotiations. Um, in the pursuit of international cooperation in space, US officials should pursue, quote, the coordination of separate efforts with extra attention to the interests of Western European partners, end quote. So they kind of drew specific lessons from this experience of international negotiation in satellite communications for how they could um, move into international cooperation in scientific and space exploration after the space race. Um, so it functions the kind of prehistory of the, the post-space race world. Um, at the same time, the history of satellite communications is also an important and I think missing starting point for the extremely privatized, fragmented, and multinational space economy of the present. Um, indeed, recent corporate efforts to bring satellite broadband internet access to remote regions, including places like Cuba and Siberia, um, most recently by a high, highly multinational startup called OneWeb, um, have retread both earlier rhetoric about the power of global media infrastructures to overcome conflict and inequality, um, and confronted resistance, including from the Putin administration most recently, um, not unlike that of the original specter of cross-border satellite television flows. Um, and indeed, it's quite possible to argue that the Soviet Union's resistance to US economic hegemony and pursuit of financial advantage, in fact, pushed media globalization and privatization forward. And I'll stop there. Thank you.